Miller's Netter, just talking to teachers. Book now available. In this exciting, one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting. Naylor's Netter, just talking to teachers. Talking to teachers about educational books, why we love them, and how we use them in our classrooms. With guest authors, publishers, podcasters, and of course, teachers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody, and welcome to another Nailers Natter. Uh, Nailers Natter recorded during uh, a one-week half-term, although our guest has just been filling me in about he's one of these lucky teachers that's benefiting from a, a fortnight at October. So maybe we'll get into that as well. So we're going to be talking to Pete Foster, and we're going to be talking about his book, which is What Do New Teachers Need to Know? So welcome to the podcast, Pete. Nice to see you there. Thank you very much for having me, Phil. This is a podcast where I've been humming the theme tune down school corridors, so it is, it is an honour to be on uh, and here in person. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. And in terms of the theme tune, so obviously we received a little bit of social media criticism last week from the man, the legend, Barry Smith, who doesn't like the uh, jingle. But do you know what, Barry? I don't care. I don't care. I think you need to invest in one and get yourself one. It's the best £17 I've ever spent. And it was probably one of the few things that went well in a recent Tofsen inspection when uh, one of the students came past um, humming my theme tune, as they are prone to do. And uh, the inspector turned to me and went, oh, yeah, I, I listened to that podcast. And, uh, uh, and my wife's uh, quite a big fan. I said, oh, wonderful. I mean, it didn't help, Pete, in the long run. No. It what happened. But, you know, it's nice to know that Ofsted also uh, listen to the, to the podcast. Seventeen anyway, pounds is a bargain, though. Well, it, well, it was, and I've done a revamp uh, in a desperate attempt to try and uh, you know sell some books. But it, you know, he, he's, he's upped his price as the man from Fiverr. He's uh, you know, he started with seventeen pounds, and I, I won't go into how much he's costing me now, but it's significantly more than seventeen pounds for what essentially seems to be the same jingle. He's just changed <laughs> the words, so I think he's obviously you know he's, he's realised that he's got, he's got a bit of a thing there, the earworms, hasn't he? Mm, Definitely, absolutely, has. absolutely. Right, Pete. So let's get into the book. So the book is, and it's a really good book to have because I know that at this particular time, it's quite difficult to recruit teachers. It's quite difficult to keep teachers, and it's quite difficult to enthuse people to come into the teaching profession. So, what do new teachers need to know? And what a good title, Pete, as well. These these are the titles, aren't they? Because that grabs you straight away, doesn't it? Thinks, right, oh, I'm a new teacher. What do I need to know? I'm a mentor. That's the yeah, that's yeah. The well, it definitely has. So let's get into question. Well, we'll get before we do that. Just give listeners a little bit of the traditional potted history into your career to this point, if you don't mind. Yeah. So my name is Pete Foster. I am an English teacher. I've been a head of English, an assistant head teacher at a secondary school, leading teaching and learning. And now I lead teacher development across a multi-academy trust. So that means going into different secondary schools, working particularly with new teachers, but lots of different teachers in the classroom mainly. Uh, coaching, lesson feedback, and helping them to hopefully get better. Which sounds like an absolutely brilliant job. I'd love to do I something like that. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. like a great job, getting to work with teachers and, you know, still getting to do a little bit yourself, so that's good. Okay, so question one is, we're going to talk about part one of the book, which is the reason for knowledge. So what does expertise in teaching look like and how does it develop? So the whole kind of aim of the book is to start teachers on this journey towards expertise. And I do say towards expertise because I think it's not a destination. We're always, whatever point we're at in our career, pushing on to try and develop and, and improve. And so the way I describe expertise in the book is that we are uh, using knowledge 
to solve increasingly complex problems in the classroom. And so that knowledge can mean different things to different people. So just to unpack it a little bit, what I mean by that is the way we describe knowledge with our students, so substantive knowledge, subject knowledge, those kind of things which teachers do arrive in the classroom with, but also that sort of procedural knowledge of teaching skills and teaching uh, kind of abilities or strategies in the classroom. And so new teachers arrive a lot like our students. They can experience cognitive overload because they've got so much to think about. So curriculum, content, behaviour, specific students. What was I supposed to do? What did my mentor tell me I, I was meant to do in this lesson? And when you've got so much to juggle, you end up, your performance suffers because you are overloaded. And actually your development stalls when you are overloaded because you can't focus on the thing you're meant to be working on. And so the idea in the book is really about developing expertise through developing knowledge, but seeing knowledge in that uh, broad sense of the substantive and the uh, kind of procedural. So the way I say that teachers develop knowledge is we, or develop expertise, is to develop firstly knowledge. So look at subject knowledge, look at knowledge of students, even basic things like learning students' names. If we embed that in our long-term memory, it does a world of good in terms of reducing the cognitive load we experience in the classroom. And then also developing process. So automating processes that can help us in the classroom, like giving warnings or uh, how we explain something or all those kind of things. Now, those two things are basically a foundation. Just because we've got lots of knowledge, it doesn't mean we're an expert teacher necessarily. But a lot of the research teachers are aware about, research into expertise, suggests that knowledge in that way is a foundation for expertise. But the thing I think that new teachers need on top of that is uh, what I'd see as kind of a problem-solving mindset. I take this idea from a great book on expertise called Surpassing Ourselves by Beretta and Scardamalia, and they see expertise as just a constant search for the next uh, problem. So if I've solved one problem, I'm either looking for a more complex version of that problem or I'm looking for the next problem to solve. And I think that's really true in, in teacher development. If I've got the class silent when they're coming into the room, that was a problem. They weren't coming in really well. I've got solutions to that. I'm organizing resources. I'm standing at the door. I'm doing different things. The class are silent. I've solved that problem. But then I find that actually they're not using that time at the start of the lesson really well. They're, they're not engaged. They're doing a couple of questions, then stopping. And so that, that, that's my next problem, as it were. And so I think we use that knowledge to solve the problems we're experiencing in the classroom. I think to an extent, you know, some people are really critical of certain types of teacher development at the moment because they're telling teachers what to do or just giving the next step or whatever. And I think that criticism is probably overblown. But I think any teacher development process needs to help new teachers to solve problems when there's not a coach or a mentor in the room. And I think that's what the book's trying to do when it comes to expertise, build knowledge, build process to ultimately solve those problems in uh, the classroom. And so that's kind of a really brief summary of how I see expertise developing and how I talk about it in the book. It's a really good explanation, Pete, and I'm sure the listeners would agree. And in terms of, I do this all the time, Pete, because I'm old uh, and I go back to, you know, being an NQT um, as it was, old money, uh, turn of millennium, that sort of thing. And you think, right, so your way of developing knowledge was just to continue teaching, 
hopefully you're going to pick it up. And of course, when you got to your appraisal and it would be, oh, such a teacher down the corridor is really, really good at, as you said there, students coming into the classroom or behavior management, go and watch them and see what they do and then come back and try and implement that. And I, I wrote about it in my book. He says, shameless plug, number 465 for own book. Um, I got sent to see an art teacher. And this was this was a long time ago, Pete. When they, they probably weren't supposed to do this even then. But he's in the art room. He sat at his desk. In my memory, he's smoking. But I'm pretty sure he probably wasn't. Um, because I'm, even then, I'm sure it wasn't live in the classroom. But he, he had the radio on. He had the long hair. And it was all, right, let's just do this. And everybody just did everything that he wanted them to do. And I thought... How am I, as a naive, you know, novice 22-year-old, where it was, supposed to pick up anything from this lesson? And what you are talking about there is that in terms of developing that expertise, obviously working with a mentor, working with somebody like yourself is really beneficial, but there are certain things that you can do as well. And that's the purpose of the book here, isn't it? And actually, those people who were talking about being too prescriptive as a bad thing, I still need that help. Mm. And I'm 23, 4, how many years into doing this? And I'm still working on my knowledge of how to get students into a classroom or how to do an effective do now, whatever it might be. So it's a really timely book and it's really useful for new teachers. Thank you, Phil. Yeah, I hope so. I think that's that's really true is that we, we don't stop developing. And so the book aims to start teachers on that, that journey of, of development by recognising that there's lots to develop. There's lots of knowledge out there. You don't arrive as a blank slate. New teachers arrive with lots of subject knowledge and some idea about being a teacher. But you're right that left to chance or left to go and see that art teacher, we're going to be in trouble when it comes to our development. I saw a senior leader science teacher recently. I was in their classroom. It was just wonderful. It was a brilliant lesson. And if you had sent a new teacher to go and observe that for behaviour management, the behaviour was impeccable. They wouldn't have really seen anything because it just was... you know, so it's almost the other end of the spectrum. It was really good, really solid teaching, but it's very hard to see those things in kind of an expert teacher. And so again, the, the, the book aims to kind of break some of that down um, to get new teachers o- o- on that journey towards expertise. Brilliant. Right, the next bit, Pete, I'm really interested in because as listeners will know, I'm banging on about habits all the time because like everybody probably, I read Atomic Habits and it's like, right, these are the kind of things that I need Love to it. do. So in terms of habits, I mean, even these things for new teachers, I've tried to make my lunch every single day and bring it in. I've packed three drinks every single day and drunk them. I've been on a run most days, although, I mean, thank goodness, as I say every week, this is an audio podcast and not a visual one. You know, it doesn't look like it, but I have. Um, so the importance of habits, but you talk there about, you know, sort of, I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the idea of freeing up working memory to be able to concentrate on your subject knowledge whatever it might be, because you've automated some particular procedures. So just talk to us a little bit about how you see the role of habits and how what role they play in developing teacher effectiveness. So uh, habits, like you say, are massively important. And I think it's important that we understand why, particularly new teachers understand why they're important uh, as well as how we develop them. So really quickly, they're, they're important because, like you say, they free up working memory. They're important because bad ones hold us back and if you've been teaching now for even just seven weeks uh, in your first term in a school you're embedding habits and so it's really really important that we're aware that we can be in bad habits very quickly and the flip side of that is also true that if we're in good habits we're at a standard that we would rarely fall below even on this is a dark long term we're gonna have a cold at some point all those kind of things if you're in good habits then even on those bad days you're probably teaching actually fairly well even though 
understandably, perhaps it doesn't feel like it. So I think there's lots of different types of habits. And I love atomic habits as well. And just it's kind of informed my thinking about a lot of this. And I think that's true. A lot of the time we focus on habits in the classroom, like behaviours in the classroom at the moment. But I think it's also true out out of the classroom as well. So making your lunch the night before and those kind of things can be quite powerful. But also things like, you know, the Pavlovian response to the bell going and standing by your door to welcome the next class in can be a really powerful habit to be in. You know, if you want to use your visualizer in the classroom, then if it's never set up, if there's a pile of books or if, you know, the software is not set up, then it's unlikely you're going to use it because you're going to have to kind of clear that away in the moment. Same with if you want to start using mini whiteboards, but they're in a cupboard at the back of the room, you're not going to use them. And so a lot of it is about how we set up our space, our classroom, but also our day. If you want to be really organized in the morning, then you know a routine, a habit of loading up your PowerPoints or whatever you're using can be really powerful. So I think habits start outside of the classroom, although obviously a lot of what we think about is in the classroom and what we've already spoken about, really, which is there are lots of habits that just are good things that reduce our cognitive load, our working memory. So um, things like new teachers can struggle to use the behavior policy. Maybe there's a particular language or a script we're meant to use. If we're in a habit of using it, that can be really, really powerful. Uh, things like narrating the positive as well, all those kind of things. But there's another set of habits as well, I think, that are just better ways of doing things that are just counterintuitive. So if you look at Doug Lamov or Adam Box's kind of work around cold call, saying the question, giving good thinking time, and then saying the name, that doesn't come naturally, I don't think, to many people. And so if it doesn't come naturally, we're going to need to develop it as a habit. Otherwise, we're likely to revert to name at the front or hands up or, or whatever else. So I think that's kind of a, a bit about habits, but I think that how do we form habits is really important for new teachers to understand. And what's really at the forefront of, of teacher development at the moment is practice. So we, we use practice to embed behaviours. And I think practice doesn't necessarily mean one thing. Deliberate practice is, is really at the forefront of our minds. So isolating a behaviour, practicing that specific behavior, receiving some feedback and kind of iterating and improving it until it's kind of, until it's really, really good. That should form a part of of a new teacher's development, particularly around those narrow things that can be practiced in that way. But when I work with new teachers, I I don't want fidelity to that one kind of practice to get in the way of different kinds of practice that we do. And so talk to new teachers who are kind of going through an explanation in the car on the way to work and, and those kind of things are in the classroom before their class come in. All we're trying to do is reduce our cognitive load or get to the point where the the effective version of an explanation is is the thing that's in our head, uh, the exact thing we want to say. I also work with teachers who we just try, as well as the practice, to do some nudges or some systems, create a system that will help us to get to the behaviour that we want all the time, every time. And so I'm working with a new teacher this, this last term who wanted to, instead of shushing and saying, right, guys, to get the class's attention, to go to a more of a kind of narrated countdown that was consistent every time. And she was finding that really difficult. And so we just put three, two, one on the back wall of her classroom. Now, you can practice the narrated countdown. We can do that outside the lesson. But because new teachers have so much to think about, I think sometimes they need those little nudges as well, the post-it note on the computer and all, all those kind of things. Uh, as well so practice embedded embeds habits but we can also try and engineer those behaviors as well um 
through things like the, 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 those little nudges and those little reminders to there's so much they're working on that I think we need to kind of throw everything at it sometimes if we're trying to get better behavior management or, or better kind of explanation then we practice we write a script we use that in the lessons and all those kind of things to nudge the behaviors forward but I think most importantly perhaps is that new teachers understand that's what we're trying to do we're not just telling you what to do we're trying to embed habits because those habits will help us to be better more of the time and I think that's the main aim main thing to communicate to new teachers on habits brilliant absolute gold big absolute gold this sort of thing and it's it's absolutely talking to the kind of things that you know if I was in charge of, of new teachers I mean I do sometimes sit in the meeting with Emma who's in charge of our new teachers and you know, we do go through some of this stuff and I'm sure that your book will feature heavily Emma if you're listening get an order in quickly um but just some of the habits peak there i was thinking while you were talking new teachers please will you wear a watch not a fancy smart watch or anything that's going to have your emails on it because you know how much i hate emails listeners you know I, if i could get rid of emails i'd get rid of them tomorrow but you know if you wear a watch you might know that there's four minutes left in the lesson and that'll help you to start your clearing away routine so that you're not running around with 10 seconds to go to get everything in and another sort of habit that I think it was Dublin of that kind of motivated me to this one Pete is you know if you want to do formative assessment and you want to use whiteboards then like you said you need to have them accessible and ready but I just thought why don't we have a pack of whiteboards pen pencil ruler highlighter red pen whatever it is times 30 in your classroom now it might be that they don't need it every class because obviously I only teach two classes and listeners will be screaming at the podcast going, well, I've got six classes. And my answer to that is always, listener, yes, well, all right, Deputy Head has two classes, but he did do 20 years of having six. You know, they go, it's all right for you. You've got three lessons a week. Well, yes, but I had about, you know, 30 yeah. odd for about 15 years. You know, it's not like I haven't done it. Anyway, back to the point. But if it's there, it frees up that working memory again. You know that you're going to have a whiteboard, a pen, uh, an eraser for the whiteboard, a red pen, a highlighter, whatever it might be, and it's all there. So anytime you want to change whatever pedagogical technique it is you're using, you don't have to think and scramble about what kind of things are going on. You just straight away, it's all there. It's music to my ears, Phil. I, when I was a PGC student about 15 years ago, I um, my first mentor gave me this advice, which was like, hand out the sheets for the next task while they're doing the current task. And it's such basic advice. It blew my mind at the time because, and, and since then really I've been on this journey about how you make your classroom work for you as much as possible. And so I don't have my own classroom at the, at the moment, but when I did in the past, I wouldn't just pile up the books at the front of the room. I'd have a space where I'd pile them into rows so that every morning I'd get each class into the rows kind of piles that we needed so they could just be handed down so we can sort of get right into things at the start of the lesson. So I don't have to think about that at the start of the day, which classes am I teaching and what do they need? It would just all be in one place. And so I think there's lots that you can do as a new teacher or any teacher really to make your life just a bit easier by thinking in terms of your classroom, where do I want things? How am I going to organize things? But also in terms of your day, what what am I going to do at the start to make the rest of the day run smoothly? What am I going to do at the end so I don't arrive tomorrow and feel just flustered because there's so much to do and all those kind of things so there's a sort of james clear atomic habits to be kind of thought about and written around just a teacher's day as well i think there's lots of exciting areas to explore there well there is and i think you could write it Pete, couldn't you you know and i think I, you know i'll contribute a few bits like uh, as we're just going off on a tangent here but you know the hours between or the minutes between eight and about eight twenty 
why would you waste those minutes in having a conversation? I'm not suggesting that having conversations with colleagues, listening is a waste of time, but you know, there's, there's, there's times and places to do that. I remember going to Germany numerous times on school trips and their trains run at eight or three and eight or seven because they're actual minutes. Whereas I think that we think that in teaching or even in, I don't know about trains, but everything has to be five past, 10 past, quarter past. You know, if you can do something at eight or seven, for three minutes every single day, it will make a big difference. If eight or seven is the minutes where you check, like you said, that the worksheets are ready by the door every single day, it makes things a lot easier. And Blister's probably thinking, why is he banging on about this? Because if you've got to think about the complexities of genetics, if I've got to think about all these complicated words that I'm talking about, you know, homozygous, heterozygous, dominant recessive, all of these kind of things that we're currently teaching, um, I can't think about that if three people's on the back row don't have a pen. Or the books are in the other room that I was teaching in the last period and I've forgotten, so I've got to go and send something out to go and get them. Or I'm thinking about, right, well, they've not got any erasers for the whiteboards and they're covered in graffiti from the last lesson. I can't process the information. I know we're going to talk about sort of pedagogical knowledge and subject knowledge later on, but that's what blocks you from thinking about that because you're too busy thinking about procedural things. And even taking the register, Pete, I don't know what your view on this is, you know, work on your split screen or have two devices so that you're not constantly flicking between the two and thinking, right, I've got to take the register here, but I've got to also have my PowerPoint there. And also, you know, don't get me started on PowerPoint as somebody who hasn't used one since September and will not be using one unless he absolutely has to. No, well done, you Phil. That's that, that's that's impressive. I totally agree. I'd, I'd say things like um, I was really bad when I, when I became a head of English, then senior leader, at having my email open on my screen. And I think getting the habit... It, of, of not having your email open when you're teaching, of turning off things like notifications and the notification sounds. So it's not like that response. I need to go and see that email now because you don't need to go and see that email now, particularly if you're teaching, but also if you're, if you're planning or you're get, preparing some feedback or things, it's about how we kind of focus on what's important. And like you say, maybe from eight to eight fifteen, it's just a quick time to sort the room or to check email but in the big times we've got at the start of the day or PPA, we want as few distractions as possible so that we can focus on what's really important. That might be planning, that might be something else. But too often we we kind of lose that focus because of all the noise and distraction available to us in a school. And so it's just something to be thinking about, to be careful of. Absolutely. This is great, Pete. I'm enjoying this. We're, we're 22 minutes in and I've not even got to chapter three yet. And this sounds like it's going to be a big one as well. So can I be controversial on behaviour, Pete? Is that, is that, is Go that for okay? it. Please do. Right. Well, I know there's a lot of noise about and people, you know, will be shouting at me again and saying, well, behaviour is worse than it ever has been and behaviour is a real challenge and all these kind of things. And I'm not disputing that. And, and for those of you that know, and people do know, you know, where I work, it's a challenging place to work in the centre of Blackpool. It, it, it's tough. But I've got to be positive about this. I think that student behaviour in classrooms, and maybe this is just my subjective view from lessons that I've seen or lessons that I'm teaching, the students are actually appreciating being taught well more than they ever have been before because they know the challenges around getting teachers into schools. They know the challenges around illness and having a teacher in front of them. So actually when they've got one, and particularly if it's a teacher that you know is doing all the things that you're talking about, they actually appreciate it more. Absolutely. So I found that student behaviour in the classroom certainly is is possibly, you know, as good as it's ever been because students are thinking, I've had two years out of a classroom, I'm back into a classroom, there's somebody who actually knows what they're talking about, hopefully, uh, with the exception of me, obviously, um, and, and I'm, I'm willing to listen to it. And plus, all those things that you talked about before, there's no distraction, there's no phone, there's no noise, there's no constant being on the move. It's just nice 
to be in those kind of environments. So I meander into a question and he said, ideology aside, uh, what do you think are the best bets for new teachers with behaviour management in the classroom? No, I agree with what you're saying. I think there's there's real scope for very, very positive behaviour in classrooms. And that's partly because I think we're more aware of what can be achieved in in a classroom in terms of the behaviour, not just the absence of poor behaviour, but the, the presence of really kind of motivated, positive behaviour as well. But I do think it's a challenge for new teachers because experience wins you so much when it comes to behaviour, particularly experience in the same school. So the relationships with the children you know, better knowledge of situations, a better read on a situation to know when to push and when to kind of pause and, and hang back and all those kind of things. And I mentioned that teacher I saw earlier where to watch them teach, you, you know, they're managing behavior well because the class are behaving beautifully, but actually you can pinpoint something they're doing that's managing behavior really well. It's the experience and the relationship in, in part at least. And so I would kind of say three things that a new teacher can do even though they're not in that place that the experienced teacher is in. So the first one is one we've kind of talked about already a little bit, so I won't spend ages and ages on it, but it's building classroom on routine. So it's being obsessed with the routines in our classroom. So I think investment in routine is investment in sort of future behaviour of our class. We've talked about routines for resources there, so I won't talk about them more, but routines for beginnings and endings of lessons. Do we do it the same every time or is sometime we're really really hot on a row at a time leave at the end of the classroom and sometimes it's like right off you go and they all kind of bustle out the difference in routine means students don't know what to expect in our classroom and that can have a real damaging effect on on their behavior because they'll think well last time we just all kind of bundled out of the room and this time you're saying stand by my chair silently and so a routine that is the same again it reduces our kind of cognitive load because we're we're not making a decision in the lesson we're just doing what we always do um, but routines for how to behave as well. If you teach art, you might want students to be independently getting resources. So how do they do that? Do they get up out of their seat? Do they ask for per permission to do that? And, and those kind of things. And I think we, again, we've mentioned it already, we, we build that through practice. I don't think just telling students, we're going to hand the books out like this, or we're going to start the lesson like this, is, is going to really get them where you want with that. And so Something I start with my classes first lesson in September is this this pile of books is your your rows. This pile is your rows. We're going to hand them down. We're going to hand them back. We're going to do that a couple of times uh, and we're going to do that the first few lessons. I think a mistake I've made with that, though, is expecting those first couple of lessons to build a routine for the year. And so I know now I really need to go back to that three weeks in a half term in to try and teach that routine to the students and really kind of over communicate why because they think it's a bit silly but like we're doing this so we maximize time in in our classroom so we you know like you said i think students do want to be in a classroom where they get things done they don't enjoy being in a classroom where lots and lots of time is wasted and so if you build your classroom on routine uh, i think you're doing that i think the, the second one is probably around absolute clarity with ourselves first of all uh, and with the students as well. And so clarity of instruction is really, really important. When we plan, we plan activities or we plan learning. But do we plan really clearly in our head how we're going to communicate that? Because often, and you know, we all make this mistake, I say things like, I want the class to be quiet. And we really mean silent. Or we want the class only to talk to their partner. And we say, J just talk quietly. And it doesn't work. And so we need to be clear with ourselves, first of all, what do we actually want? Sometimes we say focus and we mean pens down. 
And so let's be as specific as we can. And let's plan that as well. When we plan a lesson, let's plan, what am I going to say to them here? It's fine if they talk here so they can talk to the person next to them, but no one else. So I'll say that and those kind of things. Clarity on what's permitted, I think is really important. And it, it can be different to different classrooms. You might notice something different in a classroom down the corridor. In my classroom, I generally have a rule that you're not allowed to get out of your seat without asking permission because we're in English. And that sounds really horrible now I'm saying it out loud, but I don't, I don't think you need to because we're probably going to stay in our seats. But if I go to a cover an art lesson, maybe they are because they're in a routine that, that works for it. So real clarity about what's expected. And the final one is using the policy, just making sure you know the behavior policy and can use it. And I know not all behavior policies are created equal. Like some of them work really well, some less so. And in some schools, there's sort of an intended policy and an enacted policy. And those two things are a little bit different. But I think it's worth knowing the policy if you're expected to use warnings or C1s or demerits or red cards, whatever it is, getting to real, you know, really to grips with that language and that that policy. And I would encourage new teachers to go and see it be used, but again, probably not with the most experienced teacher, probably with a teacher who's two or three years in, who's kind of on a journey using that policy. And we've got teachers in our trust who are four years in who can really demonstrate really, really powerfully how the policy can be used effectively. And again, maybe this is a theme running through, but we can practice that. We can sort of practice. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to talk through the, the language of C1 or the language of warning that we use in our school or whatever it might be. We can practice, you know, Doug Lamov's language of least invasive intervention, you know, just waiting on two or thank you to the 95% of the class who've got their pens down and facing this way. Those are all phrases that can be practiced and then embedded in a way that makes that journey towards expertise more likely. And so I think there is a challenge for new teachers because you don't have what the experienced teachers have, which is maybe relationship, knowledge of scenario and situation that, that builds over time. But you can start right away with thinking about your routines, making sure your planning includes planning around clarity of instruction and also just getting to grips with the policy as best you can as well. It's absolute genius stuff, this, Pete. It really is. And I'm just thinking there while you're speaking. Um, new teachers will thrive better in circumstances, particularly for a lot of them, where there is clarity, perhaps of policy, but certainly of approach in the school. So um, we're doing a lot of work currently with supply teachers because, you know, as I've articulated many times on here and other schools we find the same, it, it's challenging at the moment in terms of filling those key roles, particularly in certain subjects. So you've got a, a minority, but, you know, a decent number of supply teachers. And actually, in the same way that new teachers benefit from, the absolute clarity of this is the way that we do things around here. And you've talked about there, but, you know, the classroom, how to give books out. I remember speaking to Tom Bennett, it must be a couple of years ago now, um, about his book, uh, Reading the Room. And it just said, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that new teachers will make around behaviour management is saying, right, okay, first lesson in September. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mr. Bennett. Um, we're going to teach you about the kings and queens of England. And no process about right this is how you enter a classroom this is how you give books out we've got better at that but i think that you're right to focus on the ends of lessons which are you know as i've already mentioned briefly a missed opportunity in terms of getting yourself set up for what your next lesson looks like getting the students ready for what their next lesson looks like getting the corridors calm if they go out of the classroom in a certain way but also you know you're not you're not a monster to paraphrase tom bennett because you're making people behave in a certain way that's how everything is in society anyway. There's a certain way of behaving 
you know, in society in certain circumstances. Look at the road, for example. I know Tom mentions that. So that's really important. But also, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, I was always of the same mind that you were, that, right, when I mean, when I say silence, this is what it looks like. I model it, I demonstrate it and say, right, here's silence. And I can remember a few times, and this will make me sound like a monster, Pete, so I'm sorry, that, you know, the, the, the loud student at the back immediately challenges that and unfortunately has to be corrected. But then the less loud, nicer, no, that's terrible to say nicer. I might have to cut that apart. But you know what I mean? The student at the front who then also speaks and you think, right, I'm going to have to do it. I'm going to have to do it. And as the tear drips down onto their page when they've received a warning and you feel terrible, but the person at the back goes, well, actually, silence does mean silence in this classroom and that's what we need to have. And then you explain why you need silence because we need to be able to think. So this, this is what I'm meandering around to, Pete, and I'm enjoying this conversation because I'm talking way too much. You're the guest. It's not supposed to be about me. It's but fine. we're working with somebody, um, and I'll give him a name check because he needs to write a book on this. A gentleman called Chris Kinsey, um, who works in Warrington. And he's, for, for us, come up with three things in the classroom. She's got teacher time, which is when, obviously, the teacher is explaining the concept. So that's to be silent. That's to be tracking. That's for everybody to be listening. And there's a certain condition. He's got task time, which is, again, a silent time when you're working on a particular task. The teacher isn't coming around helping you. You've, it's desirable difficulty. You've got to get on with the particular activity because it's been scaffolded, modelled, and explained during teacher time. And then there's a task time, which is kind of the get out of jail free card, which is right. We can discuss this with a partner. We can talk about this. We can move around the room if we need to. It, it covers practical activities in food or science or peer, whatever it might be. But what it does do for new teachers, it gives what you've talked about there that they've got a scaffold to hang on to say, right, I know what silence looks like in this school because now I'm saying. It is task time, it is teacher time, it is team time. So it is, it's, does that kind of speak to what you're talking about there in terms of, you know, just explaining those things for new teachers and also gives them a sort of centralised whole school policy to hang it on? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I think schools can do a lot to make this easier for new teachers. Things like mandating a do now task at the start of a, a lesson for everyone. The more experienced teacher down the corridor might feel like, um, I don't need to do that or I don't want to do that. But it's a team game, uh, behaviour management. And so we all do it for that reason. It's the same with what you're saying about ends of lessons. I think Barry Smith said this about ends of lessons, actually, that they're more important than starts because we're sending them on to their next lesson and we want them to arrive calm and ready to learn as well. But I do agree. I, When I was an NQT, I occasionally taught in a room where someone had made this like wheel of noise and it was like, and it was floppy off the wall, so it clearly wasn't being used loads, but it was like silence around to, I don't know, chat. And basically, in that school, quite regularly, it was like noisy hubbub was the norm. Um, and so it was a challenge to get it to the other end of the wheel. But if if schools actually commit to things like the system you're describing, you can do some massive help to new teachers where there is clarity. And students expect it as well. It's not just about us. If, if a student goes into a room and knows there's three modes or there's four modes or in do now I'm always silent or if I'm working independently I'm always silent there's another good rule I think for a school to to think about adopting then the new teacher can do it but the students aren't going to push back they're not going to say wait a minute I can chat or I can listen to music in Mrs class or I can do whatever else that they often will say even when it's not remotely true so it's something to think about certainly for leaders but I do think Teachers themselves, you arrive in a school that doesn't have that. You can think about that for yourself. You might need to invest some time to think about how do I want my classroom to be. Ideally, it would be from the school. 
but you can do that for your own classroom as well. Great points. And I can, I can hear those conversations around how much direction do you want to give a particular mm. in your role as, as somebody who works across a trust uh, and how much autonomy do you want to give? And I think that, like I said, new teachers and supply teachers benefit from consistency of approach. Um, but obviously, newer to, uh, older teachers. Do you know what? It's not always the more experienced older teachers because, you know, I fall into that category and I love a bit of routine. I love somebody yeah. telling me what to do. It even extends to meetings, Pete, as well. I love it when somebody takes charge of a meeting and says, right, you won't need your laptop and you won't need your phone during this meeting and we're going to be 45 minutes and here's the agenda. And I just think, oh, thank you. I don't have to be looking like I'm pretending to listen while checking 46 emails that are coming in. I've just that got does sound wonderful, yeah. Yeah, and, and but it's up to the person leading the meeting to set the conditions and it works well. Anyway, I'm enjoying this too much, Pete. I'm going off on tangents all over the place. So let's throw it back. So let's talk about pedagogical knowledge and subject knowledge. So you've written, obviously, about the evidence around learning and why it matters in terms of pedagogical knowledge, but also curriculum. And I spend my life talking about curriculum. I'm kind of hoping, um, like Michael Wilshaw said last week, <laughs> I, I mentioned Michael Wilshaw again. I do quite like Michael Wilshaw, but I know that's going to get a lot of people coming back at me and saying they, they don't. But the, the obsession with the curriculum at the expense of anything else has become, you know, an industry in itself, hasn't it? So how much do new teachers need to be invested in all these endless curriculum planning documents um, and how much knowledge do they actually need of all that curriculum? It's a really important question because we've done in the last few years, and when I say we, I, I mean the profession, we've done so much work on the curriculum and we've got to look at it and think, what has it got us to if a new teacher arrives in your school and it's not clear what they're supposed to teach, if they have to sort of decipher a roadmap um, to, to try and understand, like, where am I up to on this road at, the, at this point? So I don't think new teachers should have to plan a curriculum from scratch. And I, I think that's probably happening less. Um, when I started out, I, as an English teacher, went to the book cupboard and I chose whatever book was left. And maybe there were resources for that book. Maybe there weren't. And, and you just and you didn't have something specific to teach. You taught the book, which meant reading it and, and if it was a long term, stringing it out over the eight weeks or whatever. And if it was a short term, speed reading it through the lessons and, and those kind of things. But hopefully new teachers arrive in schools where, where really solid curriculum thinking has been done. But you're right that some of that work feels indecipherable or just kind of superfluous. It doesn't help a new teacher to read kind of a, a philosophy document about where your new curriculum has, has come from. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to them if they don't know what they're teaching or when they're teaching it. And so... What I would encourage new teachers to do is to arrive in a placement school, maybe, or a first school with some questions. And I'll go through those in a second. But I would also encourage leaders to think about it from the perspective of the new teacher. You've mentioned supply teachers and new teachers, sometimes quite often at the moment, non-specialists arriving to a curriculum. They need to be able to access and understand it. And actually, I've been involved in our trust in a couple of Ofsted inspections in the last year. And this is something I'm not a massive fan of Ofsted, but this is something they're asking is, how does your curriculum induct new members of staff, not just new to the profession, but new to the school, into what they have to teach? So I'd, I'd encourage new teachers to ask some fairly basic questions about the curriculum and ask these of the documents. And if the documents don't answer these questions, they probably should, but that you can ask them of a leader, a middle leader, phase leader, subject leader or, or senior leader as well. So what's being taught in this unit, you know, the next two weeks, the next half term, where does it tell me what actually I'm teaching and what's essential in that? 
what's nice to have so what must I cover this is true also some schools say well the way we teach this topic topic x is the same across across lessons sometimes it's just what we're teaching is the essential thing so being really clear on that do I have to teach this in a certain way do I just have to teach certain things um Understanding how that knowledge connects and, and builds together and makes progress through the unit you're teaching. So what connections should I kind of highlight when I'm teaching this lesson or this sequence of lessons? And also, where where is it going? So an assessment endpoint, will they write an essay? Will they do a test at the end? But also, where is it going beyond this term or this fortnight? What, what will they carry with them to the next unit and those kind of things? I think... I got this analogy from my wife last night and she doesn't know, but this really made me think about planning is, is that our daughter is learning to play the piano at the moment. And a lot of the time she can play all the right notes in the right order, but it doesn't necessarily sound like the piece of music she's meant to be playing because it's sort of like one after the other, quite staccato. Uh, she's doing really well, but you know, she's learning. And often that's how it is to start with, with our teaching of the curriculum is that, we're, we're teaching one lesson after the other without really thinking about the connections between them. And that's fine for a new teacher. You, you, you think about your planning and you plan one lesson at a time. But what you should get from those questions and what you should be looking for, hopefully, is how it kind of sounds, how it feels all together. And so what a document should give you or a person should give you is a sense of this is what we're trying to develop in our students over time, whether that time is two weeks or half term or over the next year in geography, in maths, in, in whatever, this is the kind of competency and skill and knowledge we're trying to develop. And so even if we're at the stage, as new teachers understandably will be, where you're planning a lesson at a time and thinking very carefully about one lesson, we need to get that idea of this lesson fits into a context. And so what is the context? Where is it going? Where has it come from? And those kind of things. And if we start to answer those questions, I think we actually make our life a bit easier because we start to plan not just individual lessons, but we can save time by planning a little bit more at a time as we think about, well, over the next week, I really want students to develop X, whatever it is. And so we're going to practice it. We're going to retrieve some knowledge to, to try and embed it and all those kind of things. And so we ask questions, we zoom out and try and see what Christine Council would call like the narrative of, of the curriculum. Uh, and we do that so that we get a really good understanding of what's actually being taught. But I do think you're right that a lot of what has been done on the curriculum doesn't necessarily help with, with those kind of things. Yeah, and just to kind of, I mean, I was meandering and waffling on about all sorts of the curriculum there, but I suppose, you know, in, in trusts like yours, where a lot of this work has been done, it does make it easier for new teachers that if you can pick up a, a curriculum, you understand hopefully where that fits in, that's up to your head of department to, to narrate that for you. And it does give you that scaffold to hang things on. So that is useful. I'm not saying that curriculum work isn't useful, but you know, in terms of the obsession with it, you know, if I hear intent, implementation or anything else, again. Anyway, moving on, Pete, moving on, I think. Now, this is my favourite chapter towards the end of the book, which is chapter 10. We're talking about long-term memory, and I like it because I recognise the conversation um, at the beginning of the chapter, which is something that happened to me just last week, as it gives Pete time to think about which chapter he's talking about. <laughs> Unscripted question, listener. Here it goes. Here it goes. But um, last week, I was teaching Year 11 in the preparation for mocks. So I'm a science teacher, as listeners will know. We're looking at doing Paper 1 as a Year 11 mock for the first round in November. 
And this conversation that you've got here is, I said, well, of course, you'll understand year 11 about cell biology because we did that in, in year 10. Um, cue blank looks on faces. And I couldn't even do that thing, Pete, which you do, where you, you know, you're not deliberately uh, or obviously where you say, well, you know, if you've had me last year, you would have known what this was, you know. And I'm thinking, you did have me last year. <laughs> Damn, I can't even blame it on somebody else and say this is the reason why you don't remember about cell biology. But I think that the research and all the stuff that's in the Ofsted documentation we've mentioned already, the idea that, you know, um, let me get the definition correct. So learning is a change in long-term memory, and we've got to try and understand that. So what's important for new teachers to understand in terms of long-term memory and how does that affect their day-to-day planning and delivery of lessons? Yeah, it's a really common situation, isn't it? That we feel because we've spent time on it that they will have learnt it and it's not necessarily the case. I mentioned, I think, in the book that I taught a girl Macbeth for a full half term and at the end of the half term, she, she held up the book that said Macbeth on the front of it and said, what's this play called? And... <laughs> And so we're, we're in a really challenging situation where we think because we've spent time before the lesson, during the lesson, after the lesson, and through our kind of professional lives thinking about these topics, actually that kind of curse of expertise means we think they're sort of easy or it's natural just to just to get it, and it's not necessarily. And so you mentioned that, I think it's, it's in the Ofsted documentation, but I think it's also the Kirshner, Sweller and Clark definition of learning, which is it's a change in long-term memory. I think other definitions of learning are available and you know you could spend some time talking about them but I do think that's a really useful definition of memory because it begs the question okay so what then changes long-term memory and the way I would see this is there's different levels you can go to as a new teacher particularly because there's loads to think about when it comes to evidence-informed practice and I'm really not someone who thinks that new teachers need to be experts in cognitive science after six weeks of of teaching so I think we can definitely see it in kind of a levelled um, approach that learning is a change in long-term memory. What can we do to start with? What I encourage new teachers to do to start with is, is take on board some principles from some key thinkers. So memory is the residue of thought from Dan Willingham. Um, another kind of version of that is Rob Coe's learning happens when we think hard. And I think the best practical outworking or explanation of how to do that in the classroom is probably Doug Lamov's idea of ratio that we get students to think more through the lesson and make sure more of them are thinking um, more of the time on more cognitively kind of challenging work and thinking about the right thing is going to cause or make kind of retention more likely. Now that sounds a bit obvious, you know, get them to think about the thing you want them to learn. But so often, and certainly at the start of my career, when I was designing board games about Shakespeare and grammar and things like that, that we weren't doing that. We were doing all sorts. Um, so I think those things, those principles help us to then think about, well, as we plan, how many students are thinking at this point in the lesson? How hard are they thinking? And we can reflect on our lessons, but we can also plan ahead and think, is this really, is this lesson plan, these resources I've made, is this really the best way to prompt thought? And that's probably one level. And it's, it's basic. And you may still, after that, two weeks later, find they've, they've not understood or they're still asking those really annoying questions about you know we've never done this before I've never seen this in my life and all that kind of thing but it's a good level to start on I think because then we can move to things like cognitive load theory which is what we're really talking about which is not so much about how we get things into our long-term memory but almost about the barriers to things going into our long-term memory so 
one example of in cognitive load theory is like how different elements interact. And if, if students are thinking about too much in one go, too many new things, they're likely not to retain what they what they need to retain and those kind of things. There's loads more in cognitive load theory. I, again, I don't think new teachers need to know everything about it in uh, their first year even. But it's a good place to start to think about, am I managing that cognitive load well? Because that's one of the things that's going to either help or hinder their attention. And then I think, you know, retrieval practice is everywhere as well at the moment, isn't it? And, and, and some, some of that's really high quality and some of it's not. But it's a good way of starting to think that actually learning happens over time. And so the fact that we've had one lesson on whatever topic it is, and then two weeks later when I see the class again, they can't remember it. It's a good reminder that actually learning doesn't happen in one hour chunks or whatever it might be in your school. And so you need to think kind of beyond the one hour chunk to how am I kind of trying to embed this over time and retrieval practice either through some kind of quizzing or the homework you use or specific activities to help, I think can do that. I, I think, as I've already said, there are levels to it. And so we can start fairly basically around that. What are students thinking about? And there's just a career to spend exploring beyond that, how we apply evidence and, and really tackle that problem of students being really frustrating and not remembering all the important things that we say and tell them. But that's probably a start. And, and speaking of not remembering, so listen, I know you can't obviously see Pete now, and I've given him, I've just thrown him a curveball there with an unscripted question. And obviously we're staring at each other in the barrel of Zencaster. Um, um, other podcasting hosting systems are available. Um, and he's not got any notes, and he's just been able to come back with all of those great lines about learning. And do you know what makes it worse, listener, is that, I've spoken to Kirshner, I've spoken to Lamar, I've spoken to Young, I've spoken to Hirsch, I've spoken to all of these different people, and I can't remember any of that. So maybe I need to do some work on my uh, long-term memory. But you are right, Pete, I was just laughing there, and obviously I turn off the mic because no one wants to hear me laughing in the background. But the idea of designing a board game around a particular number, not that there's anything wrong with that you know, in, a, in a, itself, but sometimes, it's particularly in science, the model that you've used, and some of my models were were really quite, you know, poor and just made up just so that, I, I, you know, I'll give you a really bad example, but I might have to cut this. So angle of reflection, um, angle of incidence, angle of reflection, done with a football against a wall and a piece of chalk. Now, you know, when you go back to try and remembering that, the students can remember that Jack kicked a ball against a wall, uh, but they've not really idea why. And actually, it's such a bad model because he kicked it badly. It wasn't in a straight line. It didn't hit the middle. It, 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 it deflects off at the wrong angle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what students think about is really important. And, and that's why, you know, sometimes I've, I've come away from PowerPoint, for example, because they remember the whiz-bang graphic or the fancy thing that's on there and, and not remembering the actual important knowledge that is needed. So I think that's that's really is good advice. Uh, but I do need to work on my long-term memory, clearly. Right, Pete, we always do this thing when we get to 50 minutes where we say we want to leave the listener wanting more because otherwise, why bother having guests on? Because you've just gone through the book, haven't you now? You're the, it's the equivalent of Audible, this, isn't it? You can just listen to this for free, job done. But we don't want that. We want people to go and get the book and discuss the book and have book clubs and you know ECT meetings and mentor meetings and groups with the book. So last Absolutely. thing to summarise uh, is what do you want people to do with the book? So what do you want the, the reader to do with it? Because your chapter 17 is what do I do now? And how do you see this book being used in schools? Obviously, I've given you a couple of ideas there. Yeah, I think it's, it's a bit of a cliche to say that you, know, you write a book that you would have liked to have read. 
Um, and I think what my first two years of teaching looked like were really just a big struggle. I found it really difficult. And if I'm honest, at various points, I was looking for to see what other jobs were out there that I could potentially do. I was struggling with behavior. I was struggling with just enjoyment of teaching. I found just lots of the systems in the school I was working in a bit oppressive and all those kind of things. And I really started to enjoy teaching, firstly, when I moved school. Uh, and secondly, when I realized this is something I could get better at. This is something I could kind of improve on uh, and improve in all the ways we've talked about. So improve in terms of seeing it as something I can organize my day. I'm in charge of it. I can create habits that will help me to be better, but improve in terms of I can actually learn to manage behavior better. It's not just something that I've just got to wait to see if it happens and I get better at managing behavior, but I can learn to do that. And similar with subject that, you know, we can learn about our subject in a way that's really engaging. I love being ahead of English because I love just spending lots of time thinking about the subject. And so what I hope the book does is it gives us a sense of that journey, an intellectual journey, this is the way I describe it, to develop as a teacher. Now, there's lots of ways we could kind of practically outwork that. I think one of the ways I see it working is, as I said, I, I really believe that, like you've said earlier, it's not wrong for a mentor or a coach to give a new teacher a next step and say, this is this is what we need to work on next. Um, I think that's quite a powerful way of making things easier for the new teacher because it's narrowing down the focus. But what the book does hopefully is come alongside that mentor, mentee, coach, coachee relationship and give hopefully an insight, what we might call a mental model of some of those things we're developing in, whether that's how do we get things into students' long-term memory? How do we um, think about planning a sequence of lessons rather than an individual lesson? It gives us something that kind of prompts thought and hopefully engages intellectually with the new teacher as they develop. It's not replacing that coaching or mentoring relationship, but hopefully it's enriching it. And so it's something I see that both the mentor and the, and the new teacher can use almost together in that way. I do agree. We're doing new teacher kind of regular kind of training through our trust through the year. And so it, it can be used in that way. There's kind of chapters, there's things to think about and next steps to take away from each chapter as well. And so there's things to try and then go back to a group and discuss how have they gone? Did that work for you? No. Okay, well, let's try something else and all those kind of things. So hopefully that's what it does as well. Is it gives uh, new teachers kind of an intellectual framework to think about their development and what it's, it's not really kind of directly about this but what I hope it does is what kind of I needed in those first two years is to help teaching feel like something that's both enjoyable and manageable as well something that you can get better at something you can feel like I'm actually improving in this um, and, and so I hope that's what it does and I think it can do that either just by someone reading it themselves or by working through it with a mentor or in a group or, or something else similar to that but hopefully in that way it's, it's helpful it definitely is and i would recommend that um, timetabled mentor meetings obviously important but also that opportunity for new teachers to come together um like i said emma at our school does that really really well uh, we look forward to that tuesday afternoon uh, if she can shut me up obviously because you know it's here you know it's like story time with phil again which people don't want to to necessarily have but it is a good idea to have those meetings and having something to hang it on particularly this book uh, will be really, really useful. So I think that's absolutely where it can be used. Right, Pete, thanks so much for giving up your time on a half term, although, you know, I don't feel too bad because you've got two weeks, which is just luxurious, isn't it, to have two full weeks off. Right. I don't feel too bad. So the book for listeners is What Do New Teachers Need to Know? A Roadmap to Expertise, and it's Pete Foster. And it's a Routledge book, Pete, is that right? 
that is right. So you can get it from Routledge, slightly cheaper than Amazon, um, or available wherever, <laughs> wherever you get your books. Brilliant. And if you just tell us, listeners, where they can find you, um, social media, and anything that you're doing to promote the book, uh, any conferences or talks or online events, wherever it might be. Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter, which is at PNJ Foster. Uh, I've got a blog there, uh, curriculumteamleader.wordpress.com, which I generally, I'm trying to mix and match. So sometimes I'm writing a blog about what I see when I'm in new teachers' classrooms, what what, what could we work on, uh, things they're doing really well, and sometimes writing blogs about things like how we give really good lesson feedback and those kind of things. I am speaking at a couple of conferences through the year, still waiting on confirmation of some of those. So certainly a, a research head or two and potentially some others. Uh, next year as well great stuff well you never know i might see you at one of those doing one of my um as alison peacock put it principled rants uh sounds like. good well it sounds better than it was but yes it does it does right pete really appreciate your time thank you so much for speaking to great. us today and enjoy the rest of your luxurious two-week half term well thank you very much for having me i appreciate it thank you Nailers Natter, just talking to teachers. Nailers Natter the book, ideas and advice from the collective wisdom of teachers. Nailers Natter brings together a wealth of advice from the most influential voices in education today. In this exciting one-of-a-kind book, Phil Naylor revisits the very best interviews from three years of education podcasting, drawing on the advice and opinions from some of the world's most innovative educators. Available now for pre-order from Amazon and out on July 7th, 2022.